This is PhD Mystified, a series about the unspoken challenges of becoming a scientist. We invite faculty from the University of Pennsylvania to share their personal journeys and reflect on the struggles that students and early career scientists face today. In this episode, we interview Dr. Conrad Cording, a transdisciplinary researcher who studies computational neuroscience and machine learning, among other areas. Dr. Cording talks about his early frustrations with school, how to get hired and enter fields right before they take off, and his advice to young researchers on networking. Thanks for having me here. I wrote a little CV for today. It's not the standard CV I'm writing. And uh, first, maybe as, as an introduction to what I'm going to tell about, there's like two stories that you can tell about my life. There is one story that the university usually tells. It's like everything's always awesome, like Lego movie style. And at some level, that, level, that story is real. You know? Like you can say, you can tell a perfect story of like, Conrad's life as kind of a set of happy circumstances that were all like really, really great. You know, like at some level. And I should also say, like, I come from a very lucky position. Like a lot of things like were set up to be like easy. But many things at the same time felt really hard. And so I, I wanted to like, through to, today, like tell basically both stories of my life. At the, of my scientific life in an interleaved version. So I was born as the son of a physics professor um, and a chemistry teacher, and I'm a third generation PhD student. So I grew up into that kind of a culture. It always felt natural. I could like swim in that in a way. But at the same time, when I was six, um, I wasn't quite ready for school, so the teachers looked at me and said, that guy's not so bright. Let's better wait for a year, because maybe he's going to be more mature next year. And then from age seven to at seven, they finally sent me to school. And at age 11, in Germany, you get tracked. So they send the bright people to a gymnasium, and the people who should rather like uh, do vocational things to like a middle track and the people who should rather not get any more education into a lower track. And the teachers were pretty adamant that I shouldn't go to the gymnasium university track but that I should do vocational school because I really wasn't that bright. Um, again, I get lucky. My parents basically said like, nonsense. <laughs> we're going to send him to gymnasium track because he should get an education eventually. And or like a university education eventually. And, and then they sent me there. But like, that might have been a mistake because throughout school, I was a B student, always. I was never among the strong students who get like A's or something. You get some A's and some B's, some C's. I usually pass things, but, but, but I wasn't good at school. And um, never did my homework. I hated it. It seemed nonsense. It, I couldn't relate to it. It just wasn't what I was interested in. I always had this problem. Like, if stuff, if I can't get excited about things, I'm really useless at it. I'm not good at following instructions. When I was, but at the same time at school, I participated in all those national competitions. I had 
lots of I had friends who were into competitions and uh, we went to like the national things in like math and coding and chemistry uh, like okay we just the first level of chemistry but physics and uh, I, I placed as the best national like interdisciplinary project with two friends so I, through that winning this interdisciplinary uh, work uh, prize uh, I got into the National Merit Foundation so the big benefit there is that you get to know lots of professors like they invite you to their homes they like have like small groups of you over and like you get to schmooze with them and that's extremely useful and uh, they have these summer schools that are also great you get to meet people and like take courses with them so then I ended up studying physics. Then after two, uh, after roughly a year and a half of studying physics, I got into biology because I had friends uh, taking similar courses that uh, uh, that like showed me that biology was more interesting. And that is like essential, basically, just like local network of students that I w was lucky to be in in this network. That is how I made all my good decisions in life. They basically, at some level, it's this network that you hook in that, like, every one person might be totally clueless, but, like, by virtue of it being enough people that are really good, it, I think I made a lot of good decisions that I wouldn't have made by myself. Uh, now, uh, in, the, uh, in Heidelberg, the physicist said, You're a physicist, you should work in our particle accelerator. But I, but I, but I always worked as an assistant uh, assistant scientist. So I worked for a professor starting the first time where I did coding about like liquids in the water, and they did partial differential equations. And then I did cancer, and then I ended up in a neurobiology lab, still in Heidelberg. So if I was always working for half a year for a professor, and then move on. But that meant that I had seen a couple of different labs at that point of time. So I wanted, so I, it was in this developmental neurobiology lab. It was the best thing ever. Like you can, under the microscope, you can see how superior colliculus, how like the, 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 the dendrites, they go like this, and then once they find the right place, they go like around the corner and like go down. And it's like so beautifully designed. So I saw that in the microscope. I was like, that must be described with partial differential equations. Uh, and, and then I went to basically, I hashed out like the first ideas, I found books, I found papers that like did that, that, that language and I was really into it. And I found this n developmental neurobiologist who was into it as well. And I went to the physicist, I'm like, look, this is going to be my diploma thesis, this is going to be so awesome. Like, finally developmental neurobiology with, uh, with proper PDEs. And the physicist would have none of it. So... They were basically like, no, look, you're a physicist. You don't understand. We don't do that kind of stuff. And uh, again, I got lucky. Basically, I was at the summer school that summer. I met that guy from Zurich. And he was like, yeah, no, we actually like biology as physicists in Zurich. Then I, and I get the position there. Now, I want to tell you about getting positions. So... Most people are like, yeah, professors choose people based on the right skill set and so forth. That is like so not true. Um, how do you get the pos a position from a professor? You read their papers, their last 
handful of papers. You ask yourself, what's the obvious next paper? Ideally, what's something that like carries the signature of what you've been doing in the past, and you propose that to them as a uh, as a project. Like, dear Professor So and So, I've been delighted to read your papers, uh, and I've been thinking that like with what I where I come from and what you've been doing, it would be so cool if we could do the following experiment. And what they will invariably do, kind of invite you and hire you as PhD student or postdoc. It, it, like they can't, they have no choice. They, 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 they will totally <laughs> do it. If you manage to halfway guess what their next paper is, you will be hired there. Great. Uh, halfway through, uh, it, I, I want to also share a little like how the feeling of things changed. So when I started, I thought my professor really knew everything. He was working binding by synchrony, and it seemed that this was the answer to consciousness and all kinds of other problems. Like halfway through my PhD, I, I learned that he really didn't understand what he was doing. And then towards the end of my PhD, I realized that even the department leaders didn't know what they were doing. And it took me about um, about a few years into the postdoc until I realized that no one I ever worked with really knew what they were doing. And by the time I was like mid-assistant professor, I, I kind of had realized that like maybe no one really who's in science knows what they're doing. Like not really, like not like we know the dance, we know how the pieces work, but like where we're going with it, we're always very unsure. Now, um, after my PhD, okay, I needed to do a postdoc. How do you, how to decide how to do a postdoc? How do I decide how to where to go for a postdoc? Well, I asked all my friends and all the professors that I know, and they kind of all pointed to London. They were like, Daniel Walpert, he's like really new, but like he's young and he's gonna be a star. And Daniel Walpert was on the way. He kind of was a star, and he was definitely on the way to be a big star. And when I joined him, there were only three people in his lab. Me and like two, two others. And it was great because he had time for me and uh, we wrote lots of cool papers together. Then, as I told you in London, I met my, my now wife. And she had a postdoc, uh, no, she had a, uh, like a visiting position at Harvard. And so after we've been together like a month and a half, it was like, okay, look, like she's leaving for, ha for Harvard. So I was like, oh my god, I've got to go to Boston. So um, I asked around in London, basically, guys, everyone that I know, like, what should I do in Boston? And people, again, pointed to Josh Tenbaum. It's like, look, Josh Tenbaum is going to be a really like, big thing in the future. And Josh Tenbaum was going to be a big thing in the future. So I, after everyone said you should walk with Josh, I basically called Josh, told him, what did, I what did I tell him? What his next paper was gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean like, okay, my best guess of what his next paper was gonna be. It had a little bit of Conrad flavor, but it was still what obviously was Josh Tenbaum's next paper. And Josh was like, that is kind of cool, I must hire you. And, uh, <laughs> which, which she did. Um, okay. In any case, so I followed my wife there. Like two years later, we go into the job market. Now we have, that's the problem. No? Two professor, people who want to be professor, they need to be at one place. So it was really difficult. I, in fact, I went first after one year. Lots of places interviewed me. 
and, and they all rejected me. They were basically, Mah, yeah, we, you're not our candidate. And so then the second year, like my wife and me went at the same time. And we really both only get one offer, both of them from Chicago, independent, which was incredibly lucky if you think about it, but it was great. Um, and then, so I was Northwestern, Chicago it was clear I was never gonna leave again because I was very happy there. But it wasn't gonna be like that because like turns out that tenure didn't work all that well for my wife. So all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, we've got to leave. And it was super stressful no? because at that time, three kids, Chicago, kind of like, okay, how are we going to do it? But I get very lucky that at some level, UPenn was looking for someone like me at that time. In fact, before I even found out that we needed to move, like we had like started talking a little bit and that's how I got here. But, but again, it was very lucky and it could have, been worse. Um, now, once I was professor, what else? Uh, I get my first 23 grants rejected in a row. I submit a grant, rejection back. I go to my chairman, they rejected my grant. And chairman's always like, yeah, little one, it's going to be fine. Um, and I come into his office 23 times, kind of over the course of three years. And then, more or less, my NIH program officer that I started not like I talked a lot with those guys. I want to learn. Like, how do you write grants that get funded? And I think at some point of time, it was just like he couldn't stand having to reject my grants anymore. <laughs> so I get kind of very lucky funded at a relatively mediocre score. And since then, I've been really lucky, at, like really good at grant writing. I am like, I, most of my grants get rejected these days, uh, get accepted these days. Um, but that was very hard. It felt really hopeless after 23 grants. But at some level, I get angry and I kept writing my grants and eventually I got it. And that is my like two CVs, like the easy CV, like Conrad's lucky, and the hard CV, things really feel very hard along the way, like mixed. You mentioned many situations where it was you had a wall in front of you and you kept on driving into the wall and then eventually the wall disappeared or got a little bit lower. How did you know to keep driving into that wall? And how did you, did, did you change your approach? What, what gave you the ability to keep on doing that? I, I, I don't know. You see, I don't know how often the wall didn't break. Um, at some level, it never felt like I had a real choice. It always felt like I would be letting myself down if I didn't pursue science. And, and, and therefore, I don't think I ever had... No, like, look, if my, if my livelihood or my family's livelihood had been on the line, that would have been different. But, like, as long as that's not like that, for me, the, yeah, it's kind of I had to do it. I think there's a real thing that science sometimes leaves you in hard situations that a non-scientific career wouldn't. Um, at the same, and, and that's something that we need to balance based on how we feel about it. At the same time, like most days are just great.
great. I work with amazing people. I work with people who are much better than me at coding. And I work with, yeah, it's, it's great fun for me. But, but even, even, no, even on the days where it felt like I'm running against the wall, it, it, I felt angry. I didn't feel defeated. I mean, like I felt a little bit defeated, but I felt more angry than I felt defeated. And that and, and that's better feeling than ho the hopelessness that comes otherwise. The question was when do you realize I'm um, sorry, when do you realize when to drop it? Yeah, in so some cases if you have to stop persisting. You, you sometimes you're like, I'm gonna keep going until I succeed and sometimes you realize, okay, now it's time to drop it. Yeah, so I'm a fast dropper. I, I like to no, I I like to have multiple ideas that I work on at the, same t at the same time. And sometimes an idea looks better ex ante than it does later. In which case, I, I tend to always publish the things, but there is this, okay, this idea wasn't great, let's get it out. And then we publish what we found so that someone else doesn't go down that same route, but I, but I, but but basically, once an idea, once like it feels like an idea isn't that great anymore, I think it's time to move on. It's it's like an exponential distribution or something. You know, like basically, the fastest projects can be very fast, and the slowest projects can be really slow. And the slowest projects aren't necessarily better. And the effect is that I think a lot of science is powered by the sunk cost fallacy. We worked with that monkey for three years, therefore there must be an important paper in here. And I, I always try and push people in my lab and in, in friendly labs out of those situations. It's basically just because you spent three years on it does not make it one bit more probable that this will be an important paper than if you had just started. A lot of professors, no, they've been working on some theory. The world moves on, that theory is no longer so hot. But the person spent half their year working on that theory. How could they abandon that theory? Well, their life and science would be better off if they said, okay, like, look, that theory had something to contribute. Now there's other theories that have something to contribute. So I think if in doubt, we should drop. We should, I mean, we shouldn't just drop it and move on. We should like, publish what we learned so far and then move on to the next paper. You, you said that there were times when you, know, you used to fail in a particular task, like writing a 23 class. So how do you actually get over that failure and move on and start working harder to the next step? Yeah, so, so, so at some level, now there, there, there can be two feelings that you can have. I give you a grant, uh, or like I give you something, I give you my paper, and you're like, horrible. Um, at some level, my natural reaction is anger towards that. I'm like, how can he see this paper is horrible, given how awesome the idea is? Did I know that I put in there? And that switch from defeat to anger, I think that certainly helps me a lot. Because it's like, okay, I'm going to prove to him that this is a good idea. Uh, if he rejects my paper, I'm gonna like now I'm gonna write it up even nicer and like show him that he should have understood it the first time I submitted it. What if you come in 
Oh, yeah, that happens too. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, if, if the, the, the other thing is that it's like, yeah, cool, that's something I can fix. Now, that's the other one. That's, that's the more positive one. For me, it was always a mixture, you know, like sometimes, and, and sometimes both, where I'm like, okay, there's a great idea, they could have seen it, but like, ah, sh shoot, I really should have written that differently. And the other thing is, uh, yeah, like, at some level, the, the, the excitement for ideas for me always weighed much more strongly than the locally putting it down. Like, sure, locally, like, yeah, it doesn't feel good to get a rejection. Still doesn't. I still get rejections. But, but, uh, but like, hey, to me, this is incredibly exciting. So, so at some level, yeah, yeah, it's just like part of the game, I guess. It, it, it just doesn't, no, at, at some level, I'm in it because I'm into it. And, and that's something that like no bad outcome can take away from you. It's like, it is awesome, that insight. And like over time, there's like so many things where I'm like, oh my God, that is so cool. That insight alone is kind of making the whole endeavor worth it. Um, you said you uh, ended up being in like different fields like right before they took off. I'm just wondering how you happened to end up choosing those areas to work. Yeah, so uh, one of them is I always asked a lot of people, and I still do. Like, if I go to a conference, I'm like, okay, tell me how you feel about field X. And I ask that the leader in that field and other fields. And it's interesting because one person will say, that's the best, best thing, and the other one says, look, they've run their cost. This is dying, that field. But, like, this uh, use a network to answer that question. And I find it's people are surprisingly generous when you ask them like that, where you're like, you're an expert in that field. What do you think about that other field? What do you think are their potentials? Who are y the young, great people? Um, now, every single person has a huge bias. So if you ask a random professor who the great people are, like, sure, his or her, like, trainees, duh. But, um, <laughs> but once you do that with a few people, then you often find that they point at the same to the same people that are rising stars, or like the same disciplines that are rising disciplines. And, um, and, and so that's, I guess, how I made my choices. What do you see as the main stumbling blocks for PhDs and postdocs around you, maybe that are different from those you experienced yourself? I, I don't know. I think, I think culture is a big one. No, like, um, if, I, if I see the trainees in my, in my lab go to conferences, I see very different things. Some of them will basically be there working on making their connections, and some of them don't. And, and I try to then do interventions. I'm basically, hey, you, I want you to talk with that professor there right now. Come with me. Uh, I, 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 I do those things. But, but like that is a big stumbling block, that at some level, 
if, if your default mode isn't to go and like talk with people, well, networking determines your success long term. So at some level, you need to have a process that allows you to do that. And that is different for different people. I've seen people that manage it very differently that say, instead of like going and meeting people randomly, they like email very carefully, these are the people I want to talk with. But basically, the network is a really important thing. The skill set is a really important thing. Now, like basically, you need to know which skills you need to ultimately be successful at your wor what you want to do. I think a big stumbling block is that people don't know their needed skill set. They're like, okay, I do this project, I do this right now. But if you're then, okay, to be who you want to be in five years, which skills do you need? A lot of people don't have an answer. You should always know which skills you want to have in five years that you don't currently have, always. And you should do your networking and your training and your reading according to that. If my skill set is like that of a lot of other people, then, well, I better be the best person among those. I'm not generally the best person at anything. I'm, uh, can I, I personally can only the best be the best person at something if I'm the only person at that. Uh, and so, therefore, what I usually say is I like look at an area and I'm like, okay, this is what they do. What combination of skills, what kind of direction doesn't seem to be covered here? What can a, differ a discipline do for another discipline that hasn't currently been doing that? And so that's often what I look for in, in skill sets. And I think like this basically, we spend thousands of hours on some arcane technique that we use. We should be using considerable time thinking about what exactly makes us us, what our skill set is. This series is brought to you by MindCore, the Mind and Brain Center for Outreach, Research, and Education at the University of Pennsylvania. This episode was recorded from an event series co-sponsored by the Center for Undergraduate Research and Fellowships and is based on Growing Up in Science, a worldwide conversation series started by Dr. Weiji Ma and Dr. Christina Alberini at New York University. To hear other episodes and watch the video recordings of these conversations, please visit our website's link in the podcast description.